Our Father, the scriptures tell us that your eye is upon us and uh, you never take it off of us. The eye of the Lord roams to and fro about the earth, looking for those whose hearts are fully his, that he may strongly support them. The eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope and wait for his loving kindness. We, uh, we can't always keep our eyes open. We get fatigued, we get worn out, we nod off in our chairs at night before we're uh, even ready for bed. But you are the God who never gets tired, you never get fatigued, you've never lost an ounce of energy. And your eye is upon us. You know everything about each man. Uh, you, you know every detail about each man's life, every man's day today, what happened, what occurred, why it happened, why it occurred. Uh, you, you know all things about us. You know all things, period. But you are deeply interested in each of us and what's going on in our lives. Uh, Psalm 139 says that you understand our thought from afar. And there are times when we do not understand ourselves. There are times when we confuse ourselves. There are times when we're baffled by ourselves. There are times why we wonder why we did what we did or why we said what we said. Why we didn't check it. Why, why we didn't stop it, but we didn't. And we're mystified by ourselves at times. But you understand our thought from afar. You, 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 know, the, you know the good times because you give them to us. And you know the hard times because you're in those as well. Both prosperity and adversity come from your hand. And you use both in our lives. And we're in, when we are in the pit, when we're in the valley of deepest darkness, when we are in the depths and can't find our way out, your eye is upon us. When we are brokenhearted, you know all about it. When we are crushed, you know all about it. You're near to the brokenhearted. And you save those who are crushed in spirit. We want to say thank you that you are who you are and that you're available to us because of what Christ has done, that you sent him to die for our sins and to make it possible for us to be adopted into your family, to be born again, to have eternal life, to be justified by the blood of Christ and to have peace with you, uh, that you are our Father, we are your sons. You have a great interest in us, concerned about our welfare and our benefit and where we are and what's going on and what we're facing and what we're dealing with. We're not by ourselves. We're not alone. You said, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. 
but don't be as the horse or mule whose trappings include bit and bridle to keep them in place. In other words, Lord, you will make your will known to us. You will show us the next right step that you don't want us resisting, you don't want us fighting, you want us submitting. So tonight, give us teachable hearts. Refresh our hearts, refresh our spirits. Encourage those who are discouraged. Lift up those who think they're finished. Give them hope, give them perspective. Each man has needs. By your Holy Spirit, would you meet those needs? Through the power of your word, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight we are in Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a great psalm for the days in which we are living. We, we are inundated with information. We are inundated with news. We are inundated with fake news. It's hard to get quiet. It's hard to hear yourself think because there's so much information and there are so many alerts and there are so many pings and there are so many interruptions and there are so many distractions. We are living in a time of uh, great trouble and division in our nation. And one of the things that can rob you very quickly of your joy one of the things that can rob you of your contentment, one of the things that can uh, get a hold of you and squeeze the life out of you is just getting fixated with the political infighting in this country, within the country, and then the international situation, and it all looks so bleak, it all looks so discouraging, uh, it, it, you cannot take a steady diet of it. And if you've overindulged on that stuff, there is an antidote. The, the antidote that you can quickly get a hold of is Psalm 2. Psalm 2 gives a perspective on political frenzy and political rebellion and political anarchy and political insanity. And it is only increasing in our day. It's not going away. So Psalm 2, you say, really? Really? So we're going to look at Psalm 2 tonight. And I'll go ahead and give you an outline. And here's how we're going to approach Psalm 2. There are 12 verses. I'm going to give you a four-part outline. We're going to sort of uh, helicopter Psalm 2. Look at the four main points. And then we're going to make application to each of our lives. Because it's very easy to look at Psalm 2 and look at the nations 
and look at the leaders and look at the influencers and the power brokers and those who are involved in backroom deals and that's all you see. But there's a lot more to it than that. So we're gonna make some application to our own hearts and to our own lives because the infection that is in their hearts is within, within ours as well. So we'll get to that in a minute. Psalm two, four part outline, it's very simple. Roman numeral one, the kings rage against the king of kings. The kings rage, the kings of the earth, against the king of kings. That's verses one through three. In the second point, we would have verses four through six, God the Father's, God the Father responds. God the Father responds to the rage. Third, verses seven through nine, God the Son responds to the rage. Fourth, verses 10 through 12, God the Holy Spirit responds to their age. It's got the attention of the Trinity. So let's read the Psalm, then we'll come back and work our way through it. Why are the nations in an uproar? And are they not in an uproar? Yes, they are. And the people, why are they devising a vain thing? I don't know if you've seen any people within a nation recently trying to devise a vain thing. I don't know. The kings of the earth take their stand. The leaders, uh, when it says kings, primarily when this was written, they had kings. But it could be the kings of the earth, it could be the prime ministers, it could be the presidents, it could be the members of parliament, it could be the Politburo, it could be the dictators, it could be the tyrants, it could be, it's the political leaders of the nation. It's, uh, it could be the deep state, it could be the bureaucrats, it could be anybody in political power. That's who's being referred to here, decision makers. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together, watch this, against the Lord and against his Messiah, his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. What we have to understand is we, we kings love to be kings. Kings love to have power. And those with power want to hold on to the power. Those with power will oftentimes, depending on the condition of their heart, but if they're not walking with the Lord, they will do incredible things in order to keep power and to hold on to power. Because power is everything. That's why you love being a king. You've got power, you've got privilege, you've got prestige. Nobody tells you what to do. You tell everyone else what to do. You've got, as a king, your plan. You've got your agenda. You've got your goals. You've got what you want to achieve. And 
you want to implement it. The last thing you want to do is to have, as a king, as a powerful person, the last thing you want is someone to have power over you. The last thing you want is to have someone have authority over you. But you see, the problem with the kings of the earth who take their stand against the Lord and against his anointed, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, is that they're creatures. And he is the creator. And they cannot exist without him. They cannot breathe without him. Just a fact of the matter. Yet they want to be in absolute control. They, 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 they absolutely love the power. We're, we're watching something right now in our country, and the way things have worked for a long time is that we have a presidential election every four years, and sometimes your guy gets in and sometimes he doesn't. And if he doesn't, historically, what's happened on both sides, your guy doesn't get in, and you say, okay, he didn't get in. Well, you know what, we'll just work harder next time, and you, know, you start working, and you, you do everything you can because you get another crack in four years. But where we are right now, we've had something happen that's not happened, before, not like this, is that that agreement between the two sides is over, and, and now we have witnessed a situation, and, and I, I, I'm not condoning one side or the other. Uh, I'm ambivalent on this. I have no opinion on this. <laughs> Just a little humor. Actually, I do have opinions, as you do, but that doesn't come into this right now. What comes into this is that there has been an agreement, and we've had a balance of power, and that's how we were constructed as a nation and all of that, and, you know, there's always been backroom deals and there's been, you know, voter fraud. That's been going on a long, long time. But generally, well, we can say this. The guy gets in, okay, we lost. So LSU beat Clemson the other night, okay? Get over it. If your guys didn't win, and you're over it. All right, all right, so what do we do? Let's try again next year. But see, what's happened this time around is that's over. We're, we're, we're going to work. We're not going to accept that decision. We're not going to do it. And it's been a change. I mean, I don't care which side of the aisle you're on. You know that's true. Uh, there are a lot of changes going on in this nation right now. What we need to understand is that ultimately, when we see those in power who have power, who don't want to submit to authority that is in place, ultimately it's just not that they're resisting that particular authority, but they're resisting God, who is over all authority and has put authority in place. He has put government in place. If you read Romans 13. Um, we, we see all the time the leaders raging against the Lord. Uh, that verse says in verse three, the leaders, the kings say, 
let us tear their fetters apart. Whose fetters? Uh, cast away their cords from us. Whose cords? The Lord's. Because the Lord has put certain things in place. He's the creator. There is law. There is moral law. We're seeing a tremendous amount of rage against God and his law. Robert uh, P. George, longtime professor at Princeton, uh, Ryan Anderson, the, these guys are cutting edge. Uh, they're Christians. They are, uh, Anderson has written some incredible stuff on marriage and some of the decisions that have been made over the last 10 years. George has been on the cutting edge and is to this day. They had an opinion piece in USA Today that simply says the decade in review, marital norms erode. And you stop and think about what has happened in this nation in the last 10 years on marriage. They've absolutely eroded. And they give a pretty quick overview a decade ago, President Barack Obama affirmed that marriage unites a man and a woman. So did 45 states and the federal government. Needless to say, that's been affirmed for thousands of years. For thousands of years, that's the way that it's been. No other definition, no other understanding. The only states to redefine marriage had done so through the activist court rulings or in 2009, legislative action. At the ballot box, citizens had uniformly voted against redefinition. A majority agreed with President Obama. Then in 2012, Obama evolved. And the Supreme Court took cases involving marriage law. Nothing in the Constitution answered the actual question at hand. What is marriage? The court should have left the issue to the people, but in 2013, it struck down the federal definition of marriage as a male-female union in a 5-4 ruling. So I have a question. Where did the definition of marriage originate? It originated with God. See, here's the problem. Is this, this stuff just, you just don't pick it out of the air. There is a God. There is a creator. He has set boundaries in place for human civilization. We're watching an attack on two of the ancient boundaries that are bedrock and have been bedrock for all of human civilization. Uh, in Genesis chapter one, verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. That's, that's as basic, as basic, as basic can be. That's like saying water is wet until the last 10 years. The next verse say, says, so you got male and female, and, and what is the image of God? He created us in his image. Male and female, he created them. So 10 years ago, we start with these redefinition of marriage. But see, in verse 28, Genesis 1, God defines marriage. God blessed them, blessed who? The man and the woman, the male and the female. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. 
Why would you say that to a male and female? Because nobody else can multiply. I mean, this is called basic biology 101. And with all the technology that we have today, that's still true. Only male and female can multiply. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds and the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then you get to Genesis 2.24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now we have man with man, and they're not ashamed. They're naked, but they're not ashamed. They should be ashamed. We got woman and woman, and they're naked, and they're not ashamed, but they should be ashamed. And that's not marriage. Marriage is a man and woman. That's it. That's an ancient boundary. We have moved the ancient boundaries. And we've done it not only on marriage, but then we've done it on gender. The, the, so, what is this all about? The nations and the kings and the judges and the legislators, what are they doing? They're doing Psalm 2. They're raging against Almighty God and his law. So we're living in times of absolute insanity. Are we not? Yeah, we are. So Psalm 2 is very, very practical to where we are. In the article, they go on and trace with the breakdown of marriage and the redefinition uh, that that's redefined family. Um, now we've lost all justification for any reasonable marital norms, they say. Um, after all, if marriage is about romantic connection, which is what the Supreme Court ruling basically said, a romantic connection. You read that, you, you read that Supreme Court decision. It, it, it's, like reading, it's like watching the Hallmark Channel. I'm just being honest with you. I mean, it's all romantic stuff. But that's where we are. So once marriage is about romantic connection, why require, why require uh, monogamy? So we're not requiring monogamy anymore. Now the newest thing is thruples. Thruples. T-H-R-O-U-P-L-E-S. Thruples is three. You got a problem with that? What's the problem with that? Well, you see, when you, when you move the ancient boundaries that God put in place, you're going to break down a nation. You're going to break down families. And, and they, they just follow this through. Uh, you break down the family. You break down the home. Every child needs a father, and every child needs a mother. And see, we used to believe that in this country until we started coming up with no-fault divorce, and it kind of went downhill from there. So, but, but see, the point is, and I don't want to spend any more time on this, when these laws are passed and all of this is going on, this is the nations and the kings raging against the Lord and his purposes for creation for all people and all cultures in all nations, in all times.
and it produces utter chaos. So now, what's dominating the discussion, according to these guys, and we know it to be true, today, transgender identity seems to dominate the discussion of sexuality and sexual morality. Transgenderism, we need to say this, there are some young people who are, who are thoroughly confused for different reasons. And uh, our hearts go out to them, and they're, they're hurting, and they need help, and they need to be loved, and they need direction. But on the other side, there is also a political machine that is funding this, and it is a movement to destroy all opposition. And it is a direct attack on the image of God. Because God created them male and female. This is spiritual stuff. So Psalm 2 is a very relevant. And you say, yeah, Steve, I'm up on this stuff. I've been reading about this stuff, and this is why my blood pressure is up, and I've gotten several new medications and all. Because, see, you, you, the, the thing is, you can't, this stuff, you get a steady diet of it, it's going to rob you of peace. And you're going to think about your future and the future of your kids and the grandkids, and you're going to have trouble sleeping at night. And, all of, and, I, and what I'm saying is, Psalm 2 is a great antidote to help us deal with these changes and have perspective. It, it'll quiet the heart. It'll calm us because it gives us a perspective. So yeah, the nations are raging. The kings are against the king of kings. But let's look at the next point, God's response. God the Father's response um, in, in verses 4 through 6. I love this. He who sits in the heavens laughs. He laughs. How can he laugh? He laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Um, we, we look at this stuff and we get alarmed and we see the power of it and we see the confusion of it and we see that people's lives are destroyed. I... Uh, I... I I want to be careful how I say this, but I, I shop in a certain place a couple times a week. And I, my heart goes out to this young person every time I see them. I don't know if they're male or female. When I first saw them several weeks ago, it was just a they just walked in front of me. And I saw long hair and I saw a beard. And I mean, it was just this fast. And then I would have sworn that I saw a breast underneath that T-shirt. And, and they were going that way, I was going this way. And I thought, that, I, I must have gotten that wrong. And then a couple weeks later, I saw him again, and my, that's, that's what I saw. 
uh, hair about down this far, full beard, and clearly outlined breast under the T-shirt. And uh, I, I, just, I just felt terrible for, for, for that individual. The confusion, the, uh, the pain. And there are young people, and they post stuff on YouTube, and there's a young woman that bought into the whole transgendered thing, started the medical procedures to become a male. She's got a full beard, five o'clock shadow. Uh, had a double mastectomy when she was still in her teen years. And then she realized she'd made a huge mistake. And she'll live with that for the rest of her life. She's not a Christian, but she is angry. And she is letting others know, this will ruin your life. Uh, Satan has come to, to rob and steal and destroy but, but Jesus is the one who gives us life and gives us life abundantly. When all else fails, read the directions. Uh, this is tragic stuff, but there is a rebellion. And interestingly enough, God the Father, he who sits in the heaven, he laughs at the rebellion. He doesn't laugh at those who are hurt and those who are brokenhearted and those who are uh, calling out to him. Of course he doesn't laugh at them. But the movement that thinks that it can rebel against his authority and rebel against what he has put in place and be successful, he laughs. It, it, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, Watch this. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Uh, Zion, originally, it's about an 11-acre piece in Jerusalem. And that, that's kind of the center of everything God's ever done, is out of that acreage. And one day, there's going to be a new heaven, and there's going to be a new earth, and there's going to be a new Jerusalem. But he has installed his son and This helps me because, you see, we look at what's going on and at times we're overwhelmed by it and we're, we're haunted by it. We worry about those that we love being deceived by it. And we need to be aware of this. If you have children, if you have grandchildren, you need to be aware of what's being taught in schools because this is an agenda that's being taught and being encouraged. It just is. So we keep our eyes open. But at the same time, we understand that our God is sovereign. It says right there, he who sits in the heavens laughs. You can look at uh, Psalm 103, which says, his throne is in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. He's in absolute control. Uh, Psalm 115 our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. He's in absolute control. Um, he's the one who has power. He's aware of what's going on. 
he is overseeing all of this. Is there evil? Yes. Is he aware? Yes. He, he has not removed himself from this. Um, he, he is active and he is at work. The sovereignty of God is what helps you stay stable in the midst of the cultural insanity. God is in charge. It seems at times that our destiny is in the hands of these leaders. But our destiny is not in the hands of these leaders. Our destiny is in the hands of Almighty God. He rules the nations. I've said this before. The only thing that gives me peace is this. Really, if you don't have the sovereignty of God under your belt, you're not going to sleep at night. You have, there's no reason you would sleep at night. You, you might have other things you depend on. But the only thing that will calm a heart and calm a soul is the sovereignty and the goodness of God. In Isaiah 40, God invites us to compare him with things that we think are great. And that's a good exercise to do. Because we look at what's going on around the world, and we look at the nations, and we look at Syria, and we look at Putin and what happened today, and all of Putin's government resigned except him. It's kind of interesting. He's still going to be there. Uh, you got Syria, you got Iran, you got Iraq, you got North Korea, you got all this stuff. We think the nations are great and we're worried about our future or what if these guys do this or these guys are red, China does this or anything. Okay, you got to read Isaiah 40. Um, verse 12 of God, who has measured the waters or the oceans in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure. And weighed the mountains in a balance. The Himalayas. You got a food scale at home? You know, you put some cheese in there. He does that with the Himalayas. It's no big deal. Or as his counselor has informed him. Who gave God wisdom? He is wisdom. With whom did he consult? And who gave him understanding? And with whom did he consult? And who taught him in the path of justice? And taught him knowledge? And informed him of the way of understanding? Verse uh, 15, behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, a drip of water. The most powerful nations in the water, it's a drip out of the nozzle. That's it. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Look at 17. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. That's not real good for their self-esteem. But they're regarded as less than nothing and meaningless. And we regard them as powerful and my destiny is in their hands. And oh my gosh, what's going to happen? And I better catch the news tonight before I go to bed. No. Read your Bible. And then you go on to great leaders. Uh, in 22, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. It is he, verse 23, who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth. He merely blows on them and they wither. 
and the storm carries them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me, that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. So I've been reading a, a book called Leadership in War. It's about different leaders, you know, in war that had an impact. So I'm reading about Hitler. Where's Hitler? He's dead. Uh, the next chapter is on Stalin. Where's Stalin? He's dead. Uh, Where's, where's, um, where's Churchill? He's dead. They're here for a season. But my times are in your hands. God is the sovereign. He raises up one, he sets down another. Go to Daniel 2. We, we at times, again, think that our lives are in the hands of these different powerful rulers and kings and entities um, we think they control our destiny. We think they control our future, not only ours, but of our children, of our grandchildren. Um, Daniel, the book of Daniel, you know, kings will be called sovereigns. Um, I, I've been really concerned this week about Prince Harry and, and uh, his wife and... He's doing a lot of research on that. I hope it works out for him. Uh, fortunately, Oprah's apparently helping him out, and that's good. Get some good biblical counsel there. But So you've been reading about some of this. You hear about it. Okay. And, you know, the royal family's in a, The queen is sometimes called the sovereign, or a king is called the sovereign. Absolute control. It used to be that kings actually made law and whatever a king said was law was law. That's how it was in the book of Daniel. Uh, Francis Schaeffer talked about Samuel Rutherford who wrote a book called Lex Rex, Law is King, because it used to be Rex Lex that king was law. And whatever came out of the mouth of the king was law. But in the scriptures, law is king. And the law comes from the king of kings. And even when the king of kings came down to earth and humbled himself and became the God-man, he didn't abrogate the law, he fulfilled the law in every point, you see. But the law, as we know it, comes from the moral character of Almighty God. So what you have in the book of Daniel, you get these different kings and the point, these different sovereigns. And the point of Daniel is that God is sovereign over the sovereigns, all the kings. So you got Nebuchadnezzar, and then later you got his grandson, and then you got Cyrus, and then you got future kingdoms in the second half of Daniel that are going to come, um, and then you got the Antichrist. But the whole point of Daniel is God is sovereign over the kings, and Nebuchadnezzar found that out when God gave him the mind of an Angus for seven years and put him in the field. And then suddenly his reason returned to him. And the guy gets saved and he's giving glory to God. And he's praising God. He's the sovereign. He's the one in charge. He's the one who's in control. That's the right perspective. But in Daniel 2, uh, two what had happened was Nebuchadnezzar had had a dream. It scared him to death. He pulls all of his counselors together, all of his guys, the Ivy League guys, you know, pays them great salaries. They drive nice cars, the whole thing big corner offices, and he says, listen, listen, I had this dream, and I know, I know the drill. I tell you the dream, and then you guys get together and come up with an interpretation. Listen, I'm not messing around with you guys. 
if you're so smart, you tell me what I dreamt. That's in Daniel 2. King, there's not a man on the earth who can do that. Well, actually there is. A kid named Daniel and his buddies. So they seek the Lord. Lord, would you show us? And God shows them what he dreamt. And in Thanksgiving in 219, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel said, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever. For wisdom and power belong to him. How much wisdom does God have? All. How much power does God have? All. See, this is what drives the kings of the earth nuts. Because he has all power. He has power over life and death. He has power over the breath. In him we live and move and breathe. It is he who changes the times and the epics. Just read this article. Whatever, all these things that have changed over the last 10 years. Well, I wish it was the way it used to be. Well, it's not. It's changed. Oh, and by the way, who's behind the change? God. Because, see, God has a plan. God has a plan for the world. God has a plan for the nations. God has a prophetic plan. Before the foundations of the world, he had a prophetic plan. And it's on schedule. It's more exact than an atomic clock. And in that plan, he raises up nations. He sets them down. He raises up rulers, and he puts them down. He's overseeing all of this. It's he who changes the times and the seasons. Watch this. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. That's our God. Sometimes it looks like things are out of control. They're they're not out of control. They're under control. We've said it before. God works sovereignly, God works strangely, and God works slowly. God puts people in positions of power I would never put, I'd never put them in, and he puts them in. You ever feel that way? Yeah. Why would he do that? He told us we wouldn't get it. It makes no sense to us, Isaiah 55, 8. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways above your ways, and my thoughts above your ways. God works strangely. But he works, and he brings good out of change that we immediately interpret as bad. And I'm hoping I can find this. So I came across this article this week at the Gospel Coalition, the story of Iran's church in two sentences, Iran. Picture of a lot of people being baptized in Iran. As Christians, we especially love stories that tell us how when all seems lost, that God makes a way. One such story is about the church in Iran, and it's one of the greatest stories in the world today. It's a simple story that can be summarized in two sentences. Number one, persecution threatened to wipe out Iran's tiny church. Secondly, instead, the church in Iran has become the fastest growing church in the world and is influencing the region for Christ. The Iranian Revolution of 79 established a hardline Islamic regime, which, by the way, rages against God and his anointed. Over the next two decades, Christians faced increasing opposition and persecution. All missionaries were kicked out. Evangelism was outlawed. Bibles in Persian were banned and soon became very scarce, and several pastors were killed. The church came under tremendous pressure. Many feared the small Iranian church would soon wither away and die. 
But the exact opposite has happened despite continued hostility from the state since the late 70s until now. Iranians have become the Muslim people most open to the gospel in the Middle East. How did this happen? Two factors have contributed to this openness. First, violence in the name of Islam has called widespread disillusionment with the regime and led many Iranians to question their beliefs. Second, many Iranian Christians have continued to boldly and faithfully tell others about Christ in the face of persecution. As a result, more Iranians have become Christians in the last 20 years than in the previous 13 centuries. In 79, there was an estimated 500 Christians from a Muslim background in Iran. Today, there are hundreds of thousands, some say more than a million. More than a million. Did things change in Iran? Yes. Who was behind it? Almighty God. If you're a Christian and you're in Iran, Lord, what's going on? Why, why, why? He wanted to build his church. But see, he doesn't do it the way I want him to do it. Because he's the king. I'm not. He's sovereign, but he works strangely. And he works slowly, but he works. Now let's look at the response of the son. Third point in Psalm 2. So you have the response of the father, and then we get to verse 7, and we read, and, and this is a response of the Lord Jesus. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This is a reference to the resurrection. And I give you a cross-reference of a Colossians 1.18 on that. Ask of me, I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Uh, when you read all of Scripture, Jesus is coming back. Read Revelation 20, 21, 22. Uh, all the nations are going to gather against him, and they're going to be defeated, and he shall reign forever and ever. And all this nonsense and all this rebellion is going to be over. Uh, this is where history is going. This is, uh, this is the plan of God. And it, uh, it cannot be thwarted. Because he has all power and he has all authority. And in the interim, what's going to happen is that he's going to continue to bring people to Christ. He's going to continue to bring Muslims to Christ. He's going to continue. The gospel is going to continue to increase as it, as it says in Colossians chapter 1. Then, in verse 10, some commentators see this as the Holy Spirit responding. Uh, Henry Ironside would take that view, uh, James Montgomery Boyce. And one of the reasons is, is that Christ is going to be exalted here. In John 14, Jesus said to his disciples, he told them he was going to go away, he was going to leave them. And they were very disturbed. But he says, when I leave, the Comforter will come. Uh, and then he said about the Comforter, about the Holy Spirit, he said this, he shall glorify me. What you've got in this next section of Psalm 2 is that the speaker is glorifying Christ 
which is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. J.I. Packer has a great illustration about the Holy Spirit. He says if you drive by along a freeway uh, 10 o'clock at night and you see a large billboard and it's lit up and there is a message and as you are going along, you see the message and you're reading the message and you're focused and, you know, you take it in. He said, but your focus is, as you go by the billboard, is not, my gosh, those lights were wonderfully placed and they were so powerful and they were so strategic. And because of that light, I was able to see the message. We don't even think of the floodlight. He said, the Holy Spirit is the floodlight. The Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus. The Holy Spirit throws the light on Jesus. Uh, I remember years ago when the charismatic movement was getting going, you would read of a conference on the Holy Spirit. Well, that makes me suspicious right there. Because the job of the Holy Spirit is not to bring glory to him. The job of the Holy Spirit is to bring glory to Jesus. Now, if they call it the Jesus Conference, great. But you see, he throws the light on Jesus. And that's what you have in verse 10 of Psalm 2. Now, therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning. And this is an appeal. It's a warning. It's an invitation to turn. Now, therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the sun. Some translations say kiss the sun because that's what you did in that day to show honor and submission to the king who was above you. You would kiss the king. You kiss the sun. You uh, pay homage to the sun because you want to show your submission to him that he not become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Verse 12 is exactly the same ending as Psalm 1. It talks about final judgment. Uh, if you look at verse 4 of Psalm 1, the wicked are not so, they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand or withstand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous, but the Lord approves of the way of the righteous, the way of the wicked will perish. It's the same message. There's going to be ultimate judgment. Pay homage to the Son. Get under his authority. Embrace him. Say, Jesus, come into my life. That's how you escape judgment. You see? God's got this thing. He's got it. Whatever it is you're concerned about politically or what's going to happen this week or impeachment or this or that, or that he's got it. He rules and reigns. Uh, I love Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it whatever way he wishes. Uh, leaders, uh, every human being has a will. We're free moral agents. We are responsible for the choices that we make. But God has a will, and his will will be accomplished. And somehow, without violating their free moral responsibility, God makes sure that his will will be accomplished. It's what he does. 
And, and it's not unjust because there is no injustice with God. God cannot be unjust. He cannot do it because of his character. So he turns the hearts of human leaders to accomplish his will. See, when you have this protected perception, it, it's a tonic. It's a, uh, it's a comfort. It lowers the blood pressure. When you get the perspective that God is in charge and God is in control, it doesn't mean that Christians won't suffer. The Christians in Iran are suffering. Uh, I, I've read of two Christian uh, pastors that several months ago were offered release. They'd been in there for years. They could go home to their uh, families after years in that jail if they would just deny Christ, and they wouldn't do it. They're still in there. They'll probably be in there the rest of their lives. Is that hard? Is that difficult? I can't imagine it. But you see, there's another world. And there's a God who's in charge. And even when the worst happens, he's the God who brings good out of the bad. Romans 8, 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Let's do a little application. This is about the kings of the earth. Let's talk about us. We all want to be kings. We all want to be kings of our own lives. We, uh, we want to be in charge of our own lives. Before we come to Christ, we definitely want to be in charge of our own lives. We have goals and we have dreams and we have ambitions and we have agendas and we want to achieve this and we want to do this by the time we're this age and all of that. And uh, we get motivated and we work hard. And oftentimes what brings somebody to Christ is, is that they're going 120 miles an hour trying to accomplish all this great stuff and have all the success in their life and then they hit a wall going 120 miles an hour and the whole thing falls apart. And oftentimes that's what motivates them to call out to Christ because they're finished, they're done. They've ruined their lives. Even after we're believers and come to know Christ, we still want to be kings of our own lives. We want to be in charge. This is what took Satan down. In Isaiah chapter 14, Satan was the highest of the angels. He was at the very top of the angelic core. But something occurred inside of him. He wasn't satisfied with what he had, he wanted more. Uh, he was fueled by a selfish ambition. There's a right kind of ambition. It's the ambition to please the Lord in whatever you do. But in Isaiah 14, we have this description in verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You've been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. Watch this. But you said in your heart, note, note the I wills. The I wills. I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. 
I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. Watch this. I will make myself like the most high. The highest of all the angels, but he wanted to be equal to the king of kings. Never said it publicly, never said it to any of the other angels. It was in his heart. Uh, it's, called, it's called selfish ambition. And selfish ambition can get into the, our lives even after we come to know the Lord. In James chapter 3, it talks about the fact that you know, last week we talked about the fact that there are two kinds of men, there's two kinds of paths, there's two kinds of wisdom, there's two kinds of ambition. There's the ambition, Paul said, we make it in Colossians, we make it our ambition to please the Lord in whatever we do. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, not as unto men, but as unto Christ, as the Lord Christ whom you serve. Uh, we want to work to the glory of God, we want to please him. That's a good ambition, but there's a selfish ambition. Um... Because you see, we all keep struggling with the fact we want to build our own kingdoms. We want to be king. I want to be king of my life. Um, we put our plans in place and we love our plans. And we hold on to our plans. And we're driven to accomplish our plans. Uh, sometimes we're so driven to accomplish our plans that we'll start cutting corners. We'll start taking moral shortcuts. We'll make... Uh, what seem like small compromises in order to achieve this driving, driving ambition. And, and what is this selfish ambition? It's the need to be seen. It's the need to be recognized. It's the need to be in the spotlight. It's the need to be number one. It's the need to be in control. It's the need to have adulation. It's the need to be successful. It's the need to be lifted up and raised up. It's selfish ambition. It's what Satan wanted. James 3, verse 14. And I got to tell you, as I was working on Psalm 2 this week, I kept coming back to me. Because I can look at all these kings of the earth and, you know, Stalin and Hitler and this guy and this guy and this guy and all these current guys and, oh man, those guys are screwed up. I kept coming back to me. And I look back over my life and decisions I've made and things I've done in the past, and you know, what, you know what it was all about? I wanted to be king of my life, even after I came to know Christ. And in God's goodness, he disciplined me. God disciplines his sons, Hebrews 12. He disciplined me. He put me in tough circumstances to get my attention and to teach me some lessons. James uh, 3, verse 13. Who, who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. That's God's wisdom, right? Watch this. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom, this selfish ambition, ambition is not that which comes down from above, from the Father, but... It is earthly, it is natural, it is demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. 
When I want to be king of my life, and that's the driving ambition of my life, when I have selfish ambition, I guarantee you in my life, in my relationships, in my existence, there's going to be disorder and there's going to be every evil thing because you're looking out for number one. And you'll run over whoever you need to run over. You will compromise whatever you need to compromise. And eventually, in the Lord's goodness, what he will do is allow you to hit that brick wall at 120 miles an hour. And you will suddenly be at the end of yourself. I was talking to a guy yesterday morning for about an hour. And the reason I was talking to him is that I spoke at a deal last week and he was there and I mentioned I'd gone through a depression that took me two and a half, three years to come out of. He said, can I, I get a phone call with you? And, and I had known him, I'd had some interaction and I said, sure. So we talked yesterday and he wanted to know about the two and a half, three years and what that was all about. And I said, well, I had selfish ambition. And... Uh, I, I wanted, I was a rookie pastor and I wanted to take this little church and make it big. And uh, I never would say this, but I wanted to get some accolades and I wanted to be recognized. And, you know, I couch it in spiritual terms, you know. But I was pretty driven. And, you know, that didn't work. Jesus is Lord. Not me. I'm just some punk. John the Baptist said, he must increase, I must decrease. See, my problem was I wanted to increase. No, 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 that's not how it works. You see? And we all deal with this. I deal with it to this day. So do you. So we gotta, we're always watching the selfish ambition because it's destructive. This ruins families. This is why, guys, you, you leave your marriage commitment and get involved with some 19-year-old chick you can't even keep up with. I mean, I don't care what, what supplements you're taking. I mean, it's insanity. It's nuts. But see, we lose our minds. And God, in his goodness, what he does is he'll discipline us. He'll save us from ourselves. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is destruction. See, that's my plan. That's my agenda. That's what I'm going to accomplish. That's, those are my goals, my objectives. I'm going to do this and this and this before I'm 30 or before I'm 50 or before this. James says, don't say next year we're going to go into a city and do this and this and have a business and make a profit. He says, if, if the, say if the Lord wills. As I was talking to the guy on the phone the other day, I said, uh, John Newton had a great perspective on this because John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, and I've read this to you guys before, but uh, he came to the Lord. I mean, he was a hellraiser, captain of a slave ship, was, a, was an utter reprobate. When he said, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, he wasn't kidding. He was a wretch. Came to know the Lord, became a pastor. He had a ministry of emailing people. Actually, it was 1700, so no, he wasn't emailing. But he was writing letters. People would write him letters, and he would send letters back. And they were so good, uh, I've got several volumes of his letters. One of them is on disappointment. Listen to what he says. 
It is indeed natural for us to wish and to plan, and it's merciful in the Lord to disappoint our plans and to cross our wishes. For we cannot be safe, much less happy, but in proportion as we are weaned from our own wills and made simply desirous of being directed by his guidance. This truth we seldom learn without being trained a while in the school of disappointment. Some of you guys are in the school of disappointment. And you hate it. But it's the mercy of God you're there. Because he's going to save your life. He goes on and says, the schemes we form in our desire to be king, the schemes we form look so plausible and convenient that when they are broken, we are ready to say, what a pity. We try again and with no better success. We are grieved and perhaps angry and plan out another and so on at length. In the course of time, experience and observation begin to convince us that we are not more able than we are worthy to choose a right for ourselves. Did you hear what he said? We can't choose right because we're blinded by selfish ambition. What we're saying is, not your will, but mine be done. That's insanity. Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. Not my will, but thine be done. So he enrolls us in the school of disappointment. And it's hard and it's difficult. We're not successful and we're, uh, we're humiliated. And it can happen through all kinds of different ways. We're humiliated. Uh, suddenly we're obscure. We're not successful. We're a failure. We're, uh, friends leave us. Uh, we're embarrassed. We're, it, it's a tough spot. Nobody wants to be in the school of disappointment. You say, I've never heard of this. That's because they don't have a catalog. You wouldn't want to read the catalog. But God takes his men that he loves and he enrolls them in the school of disappointment to save their lives and to teach them that he must increase and I must decrease. He goes on and says, the Lord's invitation to cast our cares upon him and his promise to take care of us appear valuable after we've been enrolled in the school of disappointment. And when we have done planning, his plan in our favor gradually opens, and he does more and better for us than we could ever ask or think. Now, that's how God works, guys. You'll hit a wall, and you'll think you're finished, and you'll think you've ruined your life, and there's no way you're ever going to recover. And I'm telling you, as Ray Steadman used to say, resurrection power always works best in a graveyard. When you, when you think you're done, when you think you're dead and your hopes are gone, you're not. Newton goes on and says, I can hardly re recollect a single plan of mine of which I have not since seen reason to be satisfied that had it taken place in season and circumstance as I wanted, it would, humanly speaking, have proved to be my ruin, or at least it would have deprived me of the greater good the Lord had designed for me. We judge things by their present appearance, but the Lord sees them in their consequences. If we could do so likewise, we should be perfectly of his mind, but we cannot. 
It is an unspeakable mercy that he will manage for us whether we are pleased with his management or not, and it is spoken as one of his heaviest judgments when he gives any person or people up to the way of their own hearts and to walk after their own counsel. What he's saying is the worst thing that could ever happen to you is for God to let you go the way that you want to go. But see, we all fight it because we want to be kings. So what do we do? First Peter 5, humble yourself. Kiss the Son. Pay homage to Jesus. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And he will exalt you at the proper time. Casting all your anxiety upon him. What anxiety? The anxiety, what's going to happen if I get all in with Jesus? Just get all in with him. Well, I don't know what's going to happen and how it's going to work. You don't need to know. He's Jesus. He's God. He's got all wisdom. He's got all power. He knows what he's doing. You've train wrecked your life. Let him fix it. Casting all your care upon him because he cares for you. Let's pray. So, Father, we're in the school of disappointment. It's a tough place. But there are valuable lessons in the school of disappointment. But the lessons cannot be learned if we are not teachable. So I would ask, Lord, that as we at times have seasons of discipline from you, and, and Hebrews 12 says, all discipline for the moment seems painful, but, but, but for those who have been trained by it, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. You want us to grow. You want us to mature. But if we're not teachable, we'll never learn the lessons. So as disappointed as we might be, as, as difficult as it is, and maybe right now it looks like there's just no hope, We trust in you, O oh Lord. The psalmist said, as for me, I say that you are my God. I trust in you, O oh Lord. My times are in your hand because you're my king. What a great God you are. Encourage us with these words, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.